Good morning, everybody. It's good to meet with you again. Uh, kind of. <laughs> At least uh, uh, we can't see each other, but we can um, know that we're all here gathered together as we have been faithfully every Sunday morning. So hopefully uh, the audio and video is working a little bit better this time and was a little, a little bit easier to get started. Uh, why don't we begin with a, a word of prayer and then we'll uh, open the word together for a few moments uh, this morning. So let's pray. Hold on, I'm being told. The camera is crooked here. Sorry, this is life with uh, technology. We're just going to have to live with that. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's uh, pray and we'll begin our time uh, together. Father, thank you for bringing us together once again, though in our own homes and not physically in the presence of one another. We are in your presence and we are in the presence of your word and that we share together because of the common possession of the Holy Spirit and the unity that we share with you. And so while separated, we can at least experience that part and and Lord, we need to take encouragement and be thankful for that, uh, that we have it uh, in these times. And Lord, we do pray, as always, for your church around the world where people are meeting. Keep your people faithful and spiritual disciplines. Keep them faithful together as they can. And uh, will you bless your church and encourage them and, uh, and strengthen them to be used and to press on in this time. And Lord, we continue to pray for the many who are on the front lines, as it's so often referred to, and so much truth in that, of this uh, dealing with this situation. Pray for health workers, police department, fire department, nurses, doctors, EMTs, and others, uh, many others, uh, Lord, who are a part of this, that you would protect them, that you would keep them uh, encouraged in the work that they're doing. And Father, we pray for ministries, I think particularly in our area, Samaritan's Ministry that's up in uh, New York City, uh, who's uh, serving there in the name of Christ, that you would keep them persevering and doing good, even in those who would oppose them, and that uh, their testimony of Christ and the mercy of Christ, and even as you would give them opportunities to speak the gospel of Christ to others, the Lord would bear fruit, uh, some fruit we may not know till eternity, but uh, keep, their, keep them uh, strong. Uh, in the work that you've given them to do. And Lord, many, many others that uh, go under the radar screen that we're not necessarily going to know because of national news, but your people who are being faithful uh, in these times, uh, keep them so and strengthened uh, and, and not grow weary in doing good. And this morning, Lord, we do pray uh, for our time in the word that you would bless it and that you would teach and instruct us. Be our teacher, Holy Spirit, as you always are. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And of course, I did not uh, pray for them uh, in that prayer, but uh, remember as well, uh, the uh, Navasos, Michelle is doing a little bit better. Her did go down to under 100 uh, on this morning, so we can be thankful for that. Pray that that continues. Uh, Jim's wife, Wilhelmina, as well, uh, is uh, doing better from what I understand, but continue to pray. Uh, for them and that family. Jim went to get tested, but uh, has not found, uh, had the results back yet. 
So let's remember our family in prayer and church family. And also remember uh, Elias, uh, who apparently is one of the few in his department who have not yet uh, been tested positive for coronavirus. So we'll pray that uh, that continues. Well, with that said, let's uh, open up God's word together. So if you would open up your Bibles once again to Psalm 139, we're going to be finishing uh, Psalm 139 this morning. Uh, Last week was an introduction to the idea of judgment uh, from a Christian worldview. uh, And that's what we uh, wanted. I wanted to set a context for that because that's what we're coming into here in this last portion of Psalm 139, this striking statement about a holy reaction to sin, sin in the world. And we'll see uh, from the, the pen of David. And that is uh, so striking for us, particularly as believers. We, we feel a little uncomfortable sometimes with the idea of judgment, as we noted last week. But it is as much a part of our worship. Um, as any other part of God. Every, every part of God is glorious and right and holy, and we worship him uh, in the fullness of, of his being. And as was just briefly mentioned uh, last time, how sentimentalized uh, uh, grace has become, the idea of, of the cross and of grace and of the love of God. And, and that certainly permeates the church, this, this very emotional, feel-good idea that we, we constrain the idea of biblical love too. In other words, uh, we tend to be very man-centered and the love of God is precious to us in as much as it makes us feel uh, warm and fuzzy. But whenever it challenges us, then there's a little bit of resistance sometimes that people feel uh, in their hearts, something that makes them a bit uncomfortable. We're ideal with the concept of love as long as it doesn't really extend beyond just doing good and being merciful and being kind to everyone. And and clearly, that's what we are to do even when we are persecuted. Um, For for example, uh, Samaritan's Ministries is a good example of that. Having faced some resistance, uh, they are reminded that they're there to show mercy, whatever the response of people are. And so so those those are it. But the, the problem is, is when we relegate it and we limit the idea of love and the love of God and Christian love to only that, as if there were no holiness, as if there were no justice, as if at the center of all of that were merely the treatment of man and not the glory of God. And that that really becomes the issue. Is the end, is the, the fullness of our concept of love uh, limited to just men and being nice, or is it centered on who God is and his work in Jesus Christ? And if it is the latter, then that means it involves holiness. It is a holy love. It is a holy love. And that's what we see portrayed in Psalm 139 and, and many other places, as we noted last week, uh, from the pen of David. So let me read briefly uh, this final section of Psalm 139, and then we'll look at it a bit more closely. Uh, Let's begin, however, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 19 through 24, uh, but let's begin reading in verse 17, just to set a bit of context. So verse 17 of Psalm 139. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. If I should 
Count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, this, again, is a striking portion of Scripture, and it's striking to the reader of Psalm 139. And it's striking particularly because of its contrast to the previous part of the psalm, the first 18 verses. And in those 18 verses, David is delighting, is rejoicing in the glory of God's presence, in the glory of God's knowledge, in the glory of God's providence in his life, and how that applies to his own experience of this nearness and this working of God as his covenant God. There is such joy, such delight, such uh, pleasure in these perfections of God, such comfort in who God is and God's relationship to him as, uh, as a believer in him. And so we, we have this, this kind of just delightfulness, and it would seem natural then for David to just end the psalm there, to just stop or to, to maybe make some final comment of praise and, and to leave us with that taste on our mouth alone. Uh, but he doesn't do that. David moves suddenly from the ironic delight in God's knowledge of him to a striking statement of God's hatred for his enemies and David's own hatred for God's enemies. And this, this shift is it's shocking. And it seems uh, to the casual reader to come out of nowhere. In fact, it's so shocking that some don't hold that this is an original part of the psalm, that it was added later, that it's just too incongruous with everything that David has already said up to this point. However, nothing could be further from the truth. It is completely in step with the sentiment and that, that David is expressing in the entire psalm. And in reality, then, it is a quite natural transition, and the connection is quite clear and consistent with a sincere love for God and being zealous for his holiness. Uh, let me give you just one comment that I think is helpful that someone made about what appears at first to be this incongruity between the first 18 verses and the last 19. And why a lot of times in Christian sermons, this is it's only the first 18 verses that are really discussed and uh, the last are either ignored or explained away or whatever. But one helpfully said this, and I quote, uh, the edifying practice, and by edifying practice, he's referring to focusing on only those, uh, this sort of delightful response to God's attributes in verses uh, 1 through 18. This edifying practice obscures the psalm's point, uh, which lies in the relationship between these facts and the commitment made in verses 19 through 24. It may therefore not be edifying an edifying practice because it lets Christians off the hook of the psalm's challenge. 
The demand that we come before God as people committed to God's ways and that we express that commitment in a resolute opposition to wrongdoers. The psalm affirms that love is not the only principle of a godly life. And he captured that well. I would only add this to his statement. I would only add this, that love is the primary principle of a godly life, but biblical love flows out of a love for God and his glory first. So, so it's, not an, an, it's not as though these words of David at the end or any of the words of judgment are putting love aside. It, they are an expression of true love, but just from a different angle than we, we usually consider it. In other words, true love loves God and hates sin and all that opposes God's purposes and glory in this word world. If we truly love God, we're going to hate those things that contradict and that oppose that love for him, that love for his glory. We have, again, a sentimentalized view of love that is absent of love's true beauty, actually, which is holiness which is holiness. And again, I want to show a connection between the sentiment that is here expressed in Psalm 139 and the New Testament, uh, bridging what some see as some kind of gap or chasm or divide. And again, we mentioned this last week, but nothing could be further from the truth. Let me mention to you a passage in the New Testament in which uh, the very same thing is uh, Emphasize it's Romans verse chapter 12, verse 9. Don't turn there. I'm gonna, I'm, you can if you want, but I'm gonna just read it to you. Uh, Paul says this in a celebration of a Christian response to the mercies of God displayed in the gospel. He says this in Romans 12, 9 Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Those things are not contradictory. They are one and the same. To cling to what is good is to abhor what is evil. To show genuine love is to abhor what is evil and to cling what is good to what is good. Again, let me, let me borrow from someone else who commented on this. It so aptly fits uh, what uh, uh, Psalm 139, what we're looking at. He says this, and now here he's commenting on Romans 12, 9, this person. He says, those who belong to the people of God are to hate what is evil and cleave to what is good. True virtue is not passive about evil, but has an intense revulsion of it. Evil is not tolerated, but despised as that which is injurious and wicked. They go on to say, quoting someone else, where there is love, Evil is abhorred, not merely lamented, much less covered up, but hated. Another commenting on Romans 12 said this in a more pithy statement, said Christians are to abhor, to hate utterly what is evil and to cleave firmly to that which is good. That's instructions to the new covenant church. And yet it sounds an awful lot like what David is saying in Psalm 139 as he expresses this desire to be utterly separate from the wicked, and in fact, an internal abhorrence, an abhorrence of their wickedness and of wickedness. So here's the principle. Here's the principle. It's been stated 
uh, roundabout, but, but here in a, in, a, in a bit more concise way. Simple, you know it already, but it is this. To love God is to hate sin. To love God is to hate sin. We cannot profess love for God. We cannot profess a love for God's glory and have a benign or weak response towards sin and those things which are an affront to him. They just don't go together. They don't go together. In fact, the truest expression and evidence of having seen the glory of God and having tasted his mercy and glimpsed his greatness is to long for holiness in all that stands in opposition to him. It is to long to be holy and for holiness and righteousness to be manifested in the world. So to truly know him is to hate sin. To have seen him is to desire his glory above all else. One has said such a God, a glorious God, is the true God and deserves the complete and wholehearted devotion of all. So again, nobody can have a sincere experience of the glory and the presence and the knowledge of God and come away with a casual attitude towards sin. Whatever experience was had, if it leaves one with a casual attitude towards what is unholy, then it was not a genuine experience of God as he is. This stands as a means, by understanding this, it stands as a means for us to evaluate our own worship and our own devotion. Evaluate the real measure of our sincerity and knowledge of God. If you were to ask many in the church, or if you were to go to many, and you would say, how, how do you gauge your devotion to God? How do you gauge the sincerity of your knowledge of God? How do you gauge... Uh, how do you gauge or how do you discern the sincerity of your worship? And I'm going to say that probably most people are going to define it this way by how it makes them feel emotionally. How weepy they were and sensitive they were to a song that just so moved them. How a prayer was just seen as beautiful. How those kind of things of how it made them feel. And that's, that's pretty much how people are going to measure their experience. But that's not an accurate measure. We can have all kinds of emotions. We can have people can feel all kinds of weepy emotional feelings. Matter of fact, there's large branches of Christianity where that is the whole focus is to create some kind of experience or feeling within the corporate worship service through music and, and some even through lights and other, other things that are trying to develop and, and, and present an environment that's going to stir those kind of things up. But I would offer to you this, which is where David is taking us. That the true measure of a genuine experience of God is how much it makes us, and, and, and of true worship, is how much it makes us long for holiness. How it shows itself in the righteous desires, the righteous behavior, the righteous perspectives that it creates in our life. If it doesn't create in us a greater love for God that separates us from the world, that causes us to be separated from sin, then whatever it was, 
It's not what the New Testament or any of Scripture, all of Scripture would affirm as a genuine experience of worship. As a matter of fact, Proverbs says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And, and let me just hasten to add this. That isn't to say the fear of the Lord is to hate those things in everybody else. It is to say that when I fear the Lord and I had a genuine experience of them, I hate first within myself pride and arrogance in every evil way. I want it rid of myself and I want it rid of it around me. Yes, but it is a personal zeal for holiness. And that's exactly what we see with David. We'll look at that down the way. So no one who has truly seen God and the beauty of his holiness can come away with great thoughts of yourself with warm, loving thoughts about yourself or where you, can, you can't leave from a genuine experience of worship. You will find this nowhere in Scripture or in holy men of ages past to have a genuine experience of the glory of God and of the purpose of God and come away with great thoughts of self or the importance of humanity as the central object of God's affections. It just isn't going to happen. We looked at that even just briefly in Psalm 8. How does it begin? What is looking at the glory of God? And it says, what is man that you take thought of him? What is man? You're so transcendent glorious. How do you even pay attention to us? Of course, when people have come face to face with the holiness of God, it's the same thing. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Woe is me. I'm a sinful man. Falling down at his feet as a dead man. Rather, the heart that is truly seeing God's glory thinks very little of self and longs for God's glory alone to be put on display. In fact, when somebody has had a true experience of the glory of God, when we've had a true experience of worship, what resonates deeply within our soul is to be offended at everything that contradicts God's glory. It is to long for it above all else. It is to hate all that opposes, corrupts, diminishes, or in any way fails to promote the end of holiness and true worship. So you see, that's a natural connection then. For David to have had an experience of God, it is the most natural thing in the world for his immediate reaction to say in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, those who speak wickedly. I hate these enemies of you. That's... That's what we would expect. That's what we would expect. God's glory is at the center of a true response to him. And so his passionate desire out of this delight in God is to be separated from everything that's evil. Here, these men of bloodshed, violent men, men who live outside of this covenant righteousness, He's seen the beauty of God and he hates all that defames that beauty, all that perverts the covenant, all that goes against what God says is lovely. You can't be near to God and not at the same time want to be as far away as possible from evil and wickedness. You get that? You can't be near to God and not at the same time want to be as far away from wickedness. 
So if somebody says that they have an, an experience of the nearness of God and yet is very comfortable with sin in their own life or around them or those kind of practices, then whatever it is that they've experienced, it's not a true experience of the nearness of God. You, you simply can't have that. And note the ones he describes here as wicked. He's not even just talking here about general sin, those general kind of unbelief. Listen to the striking terms that he says here, that what causes such a, such a strong reaction in him. These are those who openly and actively live in defiance of God's name and God's glory. Look, he says, depart from me, who? The wicked, men of bloodshed, those who speak wickedly against you, your enemies, those who take uh, your name in vain or treat God with contempt. His, his name is not actually there, it's, it's implied. Who take in vain, who take God with an emptiness. Who hate you, who rise up against you. These are those who, again, show an open disdain for the glory of God. An open hostility toward him and an open hostility towards those who follow him. In this case, David, but that's always the case for the righteous. They are God's enemies, and it's only right that God's people would want God's enemies to be destroyed. And so notice how God-centered David's hatred is. Verse 22, or 21. Do I not hate you, the, who, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not rise, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. As usual, Spurgeon captured this in a pithy statement. Uh, he said this, coming on this verse, he said, speaking of David, he was a good hater, but he hated only because he hated only those who hated good. <laughs> he was a good hater because he hated only those who hated good. So how do we respond to this? How, how, do, we, how do we process this? Well, one is remembering what we covered last week when we covered the idea of judgment and the, the Christian response to that. And, and it is to note this, that David's hatred and, our hate, and, the, and the hatred of the righteous towards those who openly oppose God is not a personal vengeance. It's not a personal vengeance. It is an appeal to God. It is a personal commitment of love to God. And it's consistent with God's own attitude toward the wicked. And again, just, to, just as a reminder, we looked at this very briefly last time. I'm only, I'm only going to mention it here. But that was exactly in Romans 12. He says, don't, don't return evil for evil. Leave room for the wrath of God. For the Lord says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In other words, the believer can say, this will receive its just recompense. Vengeance will be unleashed. Justice will be upheld, but it's not mine to take that. It's not mine to do that. I leave that into the hands of God, but I at the same time appeal to God to bring that about. So David isn't expressing a personal vengeance against his personal enemies against because they have somehow messed up his plans. He is specifically expressing a reaction against those and that reaction consistent with God's own reaction towards those who oppose God. And he's asking God to take action. 
Psalm 119, 158 gives a similar expression. Now, whether David wrote Psalm 119 is another question. We don't know who the author is. It's very similar to the, the writer of Hebrews. But Psalm 119 is an expression of somebody who just absolutely loves God's word, loves God's word, has, has had an experience with him that is intimate and wonderful. But Psalm 158 says this. And again, remember, this is the natural expression of one who has experienced the glory of God. He says in Psalm 158, I behold the treacherous and I loathe them because they do not keep your word. And then he immediately says, consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your righteousness. According to your righteousness. To love holiness, again, is to hate wickedness. To love holiness is to hate wickedness. To love God is to hate that which opposes him. Again, look at what he says in verse 22. I hate them with the utmost hatred. Some translations have a perfect hatred, and certainly the Hebrew word could be translated there. Uh, the idea of the term that's translating this, this Hebrew word in the Septuagint has that idea of perfection, of end, of completeness. And it could here have the idea either of the intensity of the hatred or the purity of it, and probably both ideas are present and fit the context perfectly. But even though this hatred is there, and even though this hatred is present, um, we need to hasten to add here, that there's a balance. There is a balance of the godliness. There is, there is this, this duality in our hearts between a, a love for God that, that hates everything that opposes him, while at the same time possessing within ourselves a desire to see rather the display of God's grace, that those who hate him would rather turn and repent but we can never compromise our hatred of evil and love for God's glory at the cost of ever compromising with our total rejection of sin, our total rejection of sin. One commented this, and it captures this idea well. It says, love without hatred of sin produces laxness toward what grieves the Lord. And hatred of sin without love leads to a harsh, rigid attitude. Again, we can't fall on one side of the other. He goes on to say, so the people of the Lord must learn to keep both in balance rather than focusing on one to the exclusion of the other. And then we see that with God himself, the same God who expresses his coming judgment and his hatred of the wicked is the same one who brings us these incredible offers of mercy and of grace. The same God who reflects his abhorrence of evil and the arrogant in every false way is the same God who says through the prophet Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found, Isaiah 55. Call upon him while he is near. And God says to the wicked this, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And what is God going to do? Well, he says, and he, the Lord, will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
Both are true. Jesus, who, who came to bring a sword to the earth, who came as well to offer salvation, said even to those whom he knew would, many of which experienced the coming judgment, both in Jerusalem and 70 AD, but then the ultimate judgment at the end of the age. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And he said his yoke is easy to follow him. So we don't, we don't go on one side or the other, but we need to, to emphasize here because of our tendency to want to dismiss this part that there is within a holy love as well a holy hatred. And that is the title of these messages. There is within a holy love a holy hatred against everything that is unholy. So we need to emphasize in some ways that part a little more because in our contemporary culture, we're more prone to to domesticate God's holiness and wrath against sin. And the fruit of that, as we see many of us recognize, is a shallow idea of holiness, little fear of that which offends God and for which Christ died. It is absolutely amazing how comfortable Christians are with sin, particularly in our media-saturated culture. It's amazing how in our own hearts we can at times become that way. And God needs to stir us up, and he needs to convict us, and he needs to remind us of holiness. We need to remember that the offense that sin is to the glory and the holiness of God. And the sincerity of David's love for God is really expressed in the last two verses. The last two verses, because This holy zeal isn't constrained and isn't kept only to his hatred of the openly defiant, the wicked, the men of bloodshed, and those who profane God's name. He turns it inward as well to himself. That shows the sincerity of it, the godliness of it, the spiritual reality of this hatred. It's directed at all that dishonors God and it's shown in his personal desire for holiness. Look at what he says in verse 23 then. Search me, O God, search me, and know my heart, and try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. His desire for holiness wasn't merely a desire that put him in the place of condemning others, but condemning everything that dishonored God, especially within himself. Search me, O God. Search me, O God. One says this about this statement. He lays down his resolution to lead a whole being free from all sin, but is being devoted to godliness. Being devoted to godliness so that he detested in his heart everything that was contrary to it. That is godliness. Our attachment to godliness, this writer goes on to say, must be inwardly defective if it do not generate an abhorrence of sin as such as David here speaks of. The language is a little different because that was Calvin, spoken a little while ago. But our attachment to godliness, again, the point that's being made, must be defective if it does not generate in us an abhorrence for sin. So again, it's not merely enough to be content with 
no immediate conviction of sin in our life. And this is what David is expressing here. In fact, as John Owen said, helpfully argued that sin is the most dangerous when it's silent. Sin is the most dangerous in us and the most able to produce a kind of hardness of heart when we least realize its presence. We become more comfortable and it's easier to compromise. But we carry sin about us with us all the time. We're never anywhere where sin isn't with us. There's no thought. There's no place. There's no time. There's no action where sin is not present in us. It is our constant companion. And therefore, again, as Owen helpfully said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. And so we have need to pray this prayer of David. And that's partly of what David is saying. It's not saying that he even recognized anything in it. His conscience may have been clear, but still he's saying, but I know that something is in me. I know that some way in me, I'm not totally holy. I'm not perfect yet. And so he prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. This prayer is a part of our weapons. It's a part of our arsenal in the battle against sin. Because understand this, that the knowledge of sin, the hatred of sin, the ability to put sin to death is specifically a ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes sin known to us. He's the one that shows us the glory of God and the glory of God in Christ, particularly in such a way that it produces in our hearts and our affections an opposition to sin. He's the one who does that. We depend on him to help us in this battle. And part of our dependence is shown in this prayer. Lord, search me and know me. That's obvious when we, when we see sin rising in our hearts to the surface. But even in those times where we don't see it, we say, oh, God, search me. I know it's there somewhere. Usually the way he shows it through reading the scriptures and, and many other ways, but by bringing those circumstances that will expose our hearts. Bringing those frustrations and those things that will squeeze us a bit and show us what's really, what's really going on inside of us. So we have to remember that sin is a principle that resides deep within humanity, even regenerate humanity. And it's a subtle and deceptive enemy and we need help. And our knowledge of ourselves is incomplete. And so we appeal to God to search us. We appeal to the very thing that David opened this psalm with, where he said, verse one, you have searched me and known me. God knows that, David knows and the righteous know that God is always searching me. And so we're saying, Lord, help, help me to see what you see. Discover in me or help discover to myself uh, those things that you already know to be present but are hidden to me. They're unknown to me, but I know they're there. And what does he ask him to reveal and what do we do? He says, any hurtful way. It could be translated the way of pain. It could actually be translated as a reference to idols, but that doesn't really fit the context. And so it, it's not often translated that way or taken that way. Uh, it's just to show that it could be. But it's most often understood as hurtful way. What does he mean by that? That is to say that whatever sin we pray, whatever sin lies within me that provokes attitudes and actions that align, get this, more with the wicked 
whom you hate and whom I just expressed that hatred for. So whatever in me aligns more with the wicked rather than with righteousness and with holiness, show that to me. Show that to me. Show me the things that are in me that will cause the destruction of my soul and destroy my flourishing with God. Show those to me. Help me to see them. And as you show them to me, lead me in, he says here, the everlasting way, which actually is somewhat of an ambiguous phrase. It could be referring to the ancient paths known to his forefathers or like Jeremiah 6.16, you can look it up. Or he could be saying that way of God that is eternal. And really, there's not a whole lot of difference, whichever way you take that. It is to say the way of righteousness, the way of obedience, the way of godliness, the way of holiness, the way that aligns with who you are, O God. It's not unlike, as we see this in many places in the Psalms, but David praying in Psalm 27, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, lead me in a level path. So the distinction of whether is not so important, the idea is lead me in the way of righteousness. That's the idea. And so this is what a love for holiness looks like. A love for holiness is going to hate sin, is going to hate everything that opposes the glory of God, is going to have an abhorrence of it. But the true love for God and a true love for holiness is not going to be limited merely to what is outside of us. I've said this often. It has to begin with what is inside of us. It is a complete and a whole and a holistic desire for what is pure and for what is good and for what is holy. Now, I want to, I want to end with this. Um, just take the last few minutes here that we have and answer this question. Um, which has been lightly touched on, but not, not really developed. And it, this isn't exhaustive, but at least I want to make a few points about this question. How and or slash or should these imprecatory statements of scripture be prayed today, be prayed by us? How should they be prayed? How should we respond to them? How should we incorporate them into our prayers? Well, I begin by saying that, in essence, the same way as when they were originally penned. In other words, while we as Christians long for people to be saved, Christians give their lives for this very purpose. Christians are martyred for this person. Missionaries go out on the field. They endure persecution. They long for the salvation of God to be shown. But what is at the heart of that longing? Well, there's many things that motivate that. Love is at the heart of them. A love for fellow sinners to be saved from the wrath that is to come. Jesus came, he says, because he loved his own and he loved them to the end. That certainly is a part of it. But even, even more foundational to that, not, not in any way uh, opposed to it, but, but, but as a part of that love, is this, is that we long even more to see the glory of God to see God glorified. So the motivation of evangelism is, even at its foundation, a desire to see God glorified in the worship of his creatures. Is the desire to see God glorified in the worship of his image bearers. But the corollary to this desire, and, and here's, here's where that, that fine point comes, okay? It is a desire in evangelism to see God 
worshipped in all of the earth to say as the prophets and the psalmists long for and even where scripture ends to see the glory of the Lord fill the earth to see God's glory abound everywhere a corollary then to that is to see that glory abound in the worship of God by those who have turned to him who know his redemption and salvation is to say that God would also for his glory destroy and remove everything that doesn't worship him. You see, they go together. One has said, and this is a pretty striking statement, but it's true. We cannot desire their salvation in defiance of their own unwillingness to receive it. This is the heart of the matter. We should earnestly desire the salvation of sinners if they would repent and equally earnestly desire their and our destruction if they or we will not. Again, because God is at the center of that desire. Let me just make one, just kind of bring that out a little bit more. In Isaiah chapter 2, again, you don't have to turn there, you can if you want, but Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet is talking about this glory that is going to come. This glory, this, uh, excuse me, this judgment that's going to come. And at the center of this motivation for this coming uh, judgment is this, that God alone would be exalted. Just listen to these statements out of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11. The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. He says in verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And then he says in verse 22, the end of the chapter, stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Now, here's the question then that I would pose to you and to us, to all of us, is this. Does the fact that God alone would be exalted in judgment, does the fact that that forms a motivation for God's act of judgment resonate in our hearts as something good and praiseworthy or as something doubtful and offensive or unfair or questionable? That that shows where we are in our hearts. Can we think of this judgment of God and to say, yes, yes, because God will be put on display and all that is righteous and glorious will be made manifest. Can we do that? Can we do that? If we can, then it says, well, we're, we're starting to think along, consistent with God's character and his word. Now, by saying that, there's yet another caveat that needs to be noted. And this is, this is equally as important, or we'll fall out of balance, as we noted earlier, where we have so much on love that we neglect judgment, or so much on judgment and hatred of sin that we neglect love. And so here is a balance to that. In saying these things, and we won't turn there, but God makes this point as well in Ezekiel 18. Do I desire the death of the wicked? No, I'd rather that they repent. But if you don't repent, let me tell you how I will be glorified in your destruction. So when we say these things, when we say we can delight in the glory of God and the destruction of sinners, we are not saying that our delight is in the destruction of sinners. 
as though there's some kind of perverse desire to see suffering and the wicked suffering or, or, or even worse, some kind of self-righteous desire. What we are delighting in when we say that is God's glory, his holiness being put on display, him alone being honored. It's not some perverse or self-righteous desire just to see the wicked, of which we are wicked in ourselves apart from God's saving grace. To see them destroyed, it is what we desire to say or to see is that God's glory is lifted up, even if that means the destruction. Okay. Okay, so it's, it's a God-centered desire again. And you say, well, I could never pray that. Let me suggest to you this. You do pray that. You do pray that. You pray that possibly all the time. We recite prayers for that all the time. You mean, what are you talking about? I've never prayed that. And I'm, I'm just even really now trying to come in to understand how I could, could pray that. Let me suggest you this. Every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're praying for the destruction of God's enemies. Where? What are some of the opening words? Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come. What are we praying when your kingdom come? When your kingdom comes, the coming of that kingdom is described to us in Revelation. For most of the book that ends the Bible, that coming kingdom means an absolute destruction of everything that rises up in opposition to God. And this isn't even inconsistent with the very appearing of Christ. Remember that John the Baptist, when he announced Jesus' coming, he said he called for repentance and he told those who came hypocritically to the leaders. And he says, who are you, you brood of vipers? He says the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. God's judgment is going to be deep. Don't come in hypocrisy. What did Jesus say when he came? Jesus, how did he begin his announcement of the kingdom? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is in hand. Why? Repent and turn to God because his grace is here. Repent and turn to God because his judgment is coming. So you see, they're both true. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are implicitly and not so implicitly, pretty explicitly, praying for the destruction of everything that stands in opposition to that kingdom. One has said this, um, and I'm just going to cut to the end here of this one, but he says, instead of being ashamed then of the imprecatory psalms and attempting to apologize for them and explain them, them away, Christian people should glory in them and not hesitate to use them in public and private exercise of the worship of God. He said earlier, evil cannot be destroyed without the destruction of men who are permanently identified with it. Instead of being influenced by the sickly sentimentalism of the present day, Christian people should realize that the glory of God demands the destruction of evil. Instead of being insistent upon the assumed but really non-existent rights of men, they should fo focus their attention upon the rights of God. Let me give you one more, and this is in comment, and we won't turn there. You can read it again later, but in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, there is recorded for us the cry of the martyrs who are before the throne of God, and what they're asking God is to bring his judgment. When will our blood be avenged? In other words, when will our death be avenged? When will justice be upheld? 
Commenting on that passage in Revelation, one has helpfully said this. If you have ever wondered whether you should pray the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms, let me encourage you to look again at the way the martyrs pray for God to avenge their blood. You bet you should pray those imprecatory Psalms, prayers. Prayer that God would either save his enemies, those who oppress the gospel and the people of God, that he would bring them to repentance, or if he is not going to do that, that he would thwart all their efforts to keep people from worshiping God by faith in Christ. Pray that God would either save those who destroy families and hurt little children or thwart all their efforts and keep them from doing further harm. Those prayers will be heard. Pray that God would either redeem people who are right now identifying with the seed of the serpent or if he is not going to redeem them, that he would crush them in all their evil designs. God will answer those prayers. We heard recently of those who are wickedly opposing some of the Christian ministries, Samaritan's Purse particularly. That's why uh, we've been praying for them in New York City, although this certainly is happening in other places as well. You say, how would we pray for them? How would imprecatory psalms come on that situation? And then again, we could... We can think of many, many situations. We can think of abortion clinics. We can think of all kinds of situations. How would we pray then? Well, exactly that one author captured. We pray, oh God, I pray that you would save these people. I pray that you would use the witness and the testimony of this Christian ministry to bring the light of the gospel into the hearts of many people who are there. But if you do not, oh Lord, And for those whom you are not going to redeem, I pray that you would stop them, that all of their plans would fail, that the nets they're laying for Christians, they themselves would be fallen into, fall into. I pray that they would be destroyed in all of their designs, that they would be removed, that you would crush them. And we can pray that. Again, we're not praying that out of some personal vengeance, but we are praying it out of a zeal for God to accomplish his purposes. That's the difference. There's two kingdoms at war. We can only want one to be preeminent. If Satan's kingdom were to have its way, it would destroy the kingdom of God. He lays out no qualms about his desire for everything in his wants to be eliminated. We see that at the cross. Satan would destroy God himself if he could. Christians who are in God's kingdom want no less, even more, for the kingdom of Satan to be destroyed and those who are a part of it. And we say, no, we want that kingdom to be decimated. Just one other mention. We can remember, too, that there is another layer within the imprecatory Psalms, particularly, that we praise. A lot of us don't have the enemies directly confronting us as The psalmist did, but we have spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. Our battle is a spiritual battle. And we we pray just as much that God would destroy those forces and those those principalities and powers and so forth that would bring about such deception and havoc on the world and God's people. And with that as well, we remember that very often God brings salvation through judgment. And so in praying for judgment, we're also praying that that judgment would produce repentance in others. And so here we are in Psalm 139 in this perfect expression of desire for the holiness of God, a sincere love for God's glory. 
How do we know it's true when we desire God's holiness above all else? How do we know the sincerity of our worship when it causes us to abhor sin and everything that stands opposed to righteousness and holiness? How do we know that that's sincere is when that desire for holiness is for our own personal holiness as much as it is to see God's glory displayed in the world? Our cry for holiness and the love for God must be displayed in both. And so there we are in this expression of worship. I pray that that is, that we all take those things to heart, that we evaluate our love to God by the obedience and the hatred of sin that it produces in our life, that we learn to pray these prayers and understand them in the context of a Christian worldview and in the context of the gospel and not shy away from them. And that we would be a holy people who do sincerely delight in the nearness and the providence and the knowledge and the presence and the glory of God. Let me go ahead and pray for us. And uh, thank you for joining us today. But let me close in prayer. Father, help us in every way to seek you and to know you with the delightful nearness that David displays here. That knowledge toward us that is so full, so complete, so intimate, it knows every thought and intention of our heart. There is nothing in our lives, no pattern of our lives, no goals and desires and wants in our life that are not open and laid bare before you and perfectly seen. We pray with David that you would help us to see them well, for us to know ourselves in truth where we cover over our sin, where we rationalize disobedience. Oh Lord, please reveal that to us and crush it in us and help us to repent. Help us to know that there is no place in life. There's no place in this planet, this universe that we could ever go from your nearness and help us to find that comfort to know that you will never leave us and forsake us in times of blessing and in times of want that you are there and that your right hand will guide us as we seek to follow you. Help us to remember and delight in your glorious providence in our life that no, it didn't just begin at some magical moment, but at the very point of conception, at the very point of all of the physical design of our, of our person was realized at the very point of conception and that your providence began even there and covers every detail of our lives from beginning to end us learn to trust you and to follow you even as proverbs says to trust you with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding but acknowledge you in all of our ways and you will make our paths clear to know that your providence includes the good works that you have designed for us as paul said that there are good works which god prepared for us beforehand from all eternity may we walk in them and lord help us to be those whose worship is sincere of you that hate sin, that abhors what is evil in us and outside of us. Help us to be discerning over what goes on in our own hearts. Help us to have a right evaluation of what true worship looks like. And Lord, for any who don't know you, we do pray that you would bring them all the way to a saving knowledge of your dear son. And again, we pray for those who are on the front lines of uh, in the medical field and others and police force and fire department and so forth, that you would uphold them. And Lord, particularly Christians, particularly your people, use them as lights in this dark world. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.
All right, beloved. We'll see you same time, same place next week.